0: You're listening to Solar Insiders, a fortnightly update on the ins and outs of the solar industry and what it means for solar owners and industry. With Renew Economies editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading solar industry veteran, Nigel Morris. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Clenergy, providers of innovative, high-quality solar solutions to the world. Sunwiz, Australia's leading service provider to the solar and storage industry. And Solar Analytics, developing smart solar software you can trust for homes, businesses and solar retailers right here in Australia.
1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Solar Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, also of one step off the grid and the EV focus, the driven. And joining me as usual is Nigel Morris from Solar Analytics. Nigel, how are you?
2: Excellent. Thank you, Giles. Excellent. It's been a tumultuous couple of weeks, I have to say. Uh, And I I did have to sprint uh, literally through the bush up the hill, over the cliff, and down to my dungeon to log onto the microphone. So um, I'm trying to catch my breath.
1: The things we do for the industry, Nigel, it just, um, it's, you know, it, it's amazing. <laughs> I actually recorded the Energy Insiders podcast this morning, and I was actually sitting in the Tesla charging at the Macquarie Centre right next to the Star Car Wash, who were busy vacuuming and washing down and things like that. But we got through that okay. Sure, um, but I'm now, in my, that. now I'm in my, mother's, my, my mother-in-law's study. <laughs> and um, before embarking, I'm embarking tomorrow to go back into the COVID central, which is now Byron Bay, back home, oh, so, um, red zone. You're going back to the red zone. I'm going into the red zone. I'm not too sure whether this is a wise decision, but look, um, um, we figured that uh, we'll do some shopping in Coffs Harbour on the way back, and uh, uh, we'll just stock up. And um, <laughs> we're we're all good for toilet paper and bub- and, um, and and champagne. So I think we're fine. <laughs> You'll survive. You'll survive. What do we got on this week, my friend? Well, look, we've really only got one topic of conversation, and that's the solar export tax. And um, we've got a couple of people sharing their opinion with us. And look, I think my, now might be the time to um, introduce, um, honestly, your classmate, but no, your stablemate, um, your <laughs> Jonathan <laughs> Dorr. He's the head of product innovation from Solar Analytics. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast.
3: Hello, Giles. Hello, Nigel. Thanks for having me on. Look,
1: it's a pleasure. We did want to unpack as much as we could about the solar export tax proposal. Nigel, I mean, so this is... look, Yeah, let's just step back in time. Four years ago, it was proposed by the AMC uh, or by the networks and entertained by the AMC. It was a blanket proposal of, you know, whatever charge it would be to send back to the grid. There was massive pushback and Mm. it didn't get through. Now Mm. it seems to be repackaged. It's being recast as a solution to the export limits which we have seen across the grid and we are told it won't affect everyone and those of you it may affect may not be so bad what's your kind of what's your kind what's your reaction what's your instinctive reaction Nigel
2: well that's it's 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 there's a lot to unpack in this uh Giles and and it was actually I'm really glad we gave Jono a chance to to come on tonight and talk to us about it because i Jono's one of those guys who kind of hardly, uh, kind of hides in the background in solar analytics, but is this just fountain of wisdom and knowledge and 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 uh, and balanced view on where the market is heading long term. So I, I had a great chat with Jono, and that's why I said, "Geez, we've got to get him on because he he really." I, I sent some bullet points through to him and said, "Jono, this is where I'm sitting on it, and and I want your view." And we'll hear from Jono in a moment, but to me apart from the fact that obviously the industry seems pretty split on this issue, which is the first thing um, that I kind of think is a really interesting point because there's, there's, it's not a black and white issue, right? And there, there is a real split in whether this is good or, or bad. Um, But for me, I kind of honed in on two or three issues. And um, so, you know, personally, I'm sitting on the fence on this issue. I, I think there is a massive opportunity for us to um, balance some imbalances, if you like, and to address uh, some of the um, uh, inequities in the market in the way that energy is handled. And, and I'm, when I talk about energy, I talk about not only solar, but also about load. Uh, and I think there's a lot of inequities in there. And that's what Jono and I talked about that I'm sure we'll get into. Um, And I think the other key issue around this for me is around transparency, uh, which our industry has been really, really lacking. So, you know, in, in, in short, I think I'm not adverse where I'm landing is I'm not adverse to solar owners paying their way. But I'm also not adverse to loads paying their way. And I think there's a really delicate balance there that we need to get right, that I don't know that the AMC proposal has got right yet. And secondly, what I'm all about is transparency. And that's what this industry lacks so terribly because um, there is a complete lack of transparency about where export limits apply, how prolific they are, why they apply what costs might be applied and everything else. So for me, the issue boils down to, you know, let's get the inequities equalized across the board. And secondly, let's all have transparency into what's going on let's turn to jonathan
1: jonathan uh, nigel's talked you up a bit there so um the pressure's on oh yeah (laughs) the
3: pressure's always on uh, but uh, especially following a guy like nigel but you know look i I want to pick up on what um nigel was saying there uh, firstly about how the industry is a bit split on this um and the solar industry industry is often fairly unified um sometimes against a common enemy but um, maybe thinking about the real positives of where we find ourselves at this moment, um, I think we are a bit split because we're getting into the really complex areas of how best to manage this transition. And what it really indicates, I think, is the size, the scale of, of solar and rooftop solar at the moment. You know, 10 years ago, they didn't you know really care about what we were doing and 20 years ago, uh, they didn't even know what we were doing. Right now, solar is a massive part of the energy system, uh, and a complex part. And and every part of the of the people who run the energy system are working out how to integrate it most efficiently. So, first off, you know a bit of respect and kudos to those who are working really hard to do it. They might not always get it right, but I believe they are working hard. And and secondly, yeah, just to just note that 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 bit of I guess split and opinion throughout the solar industry is indicative of 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 this growing up, I think, and really being a mature part of this industry and really needing to have a mature debate about how how best to balance these issues um, Mm -hmm. and not just be one-sided. So.
1: I think I'd like to do now is that, um, as I mentioned before, I, I think i talked, um, I think I mentioned it before, that I talked earlier today with Bruce Mountain from the Victoria Energy Policy Centre, and for him, it's pretty black and white, and it's pretty black, actually. Um, he's not in favour <laughs> of it at all. Um, let's have a little listen to um, his interview and his arguments why this is not a good idea, and, and let's just go from there. Bruce Mountain from the Victorian Energy Policy Centre. Thanks for joining the Solar Insiders podcast.
4: Hi, Giles. How are you?
1: Look pretty good. Um, It's true to say that nothing has quite captured the attention of the industry as the proposal for a solar tax. Now... About four years ago, I think this idea first came up before the Australian Energy Market Corporation. It was proposed for a blanket tax and it was pretty much shouted down quickly and they backed away from it. They've come back again this time. It seems to be slightly more nuanced. It may not affect everybody, but it will certainly affect a certain amount of people. The networks are arguing that right now the biggest problem is curtailment of rooftop solar. The fact that some aren't actually allowed to export to the grid and some are severely limited. And they say that le- solar taxes, in other words, um, investing money to ensure that this doesn't happen, is a less bad thing than solar curtailment. What's your response to that?
4: Oh, Giles, that um, sounds like um, the argument of a scoundrel to me. It's kind <laughs> of like... If you paid me, I'll stop beating you. Um, If you join my racket, I'll ensure that your goods stay safe. If there is evidence of solar congestion and there's a problem and uh, networks are not getting enough revenue uh, or costs or or money to spend on, you know, bar putting in large costs on others, then I'd say there's a perfectly reasonable case here because if you don't want to impose those costs on others and it seems quite reasonable that you shouldn't want to, it would be quite reasonable for the networks to say, we have our hands out and you guys should be paying. So the whole thing kind of comes down on the evidence of a problem and an evidence that there's a shortage of revenue or that there's a large cost. And so what is the evidence? Well, the evidence is perfectly clear for anyone who bothered to open a regulatory application the network businesses have had their hands on, typically for of the order of uh, five to ten million dollars a year over five years, to integrate solar. And so, what does that mean? Essentially, changing the loading on different phases, um, changing the tap settings on transformers here and there, a little bit of monitoring, and so on. I got an email from Powercore, who's the company that ships my electricity, and. Um, they, they, they told me of all the fantastic things they were doing on the network by changing the loading of the phases and changing the tap changing and transformers and 50,000 households who had, solar, uh, uh, you know, um, it's some kind of a solar issue would be fixed in the next three months. Big deal. This is just a trivial non-issue. As a proportion of the allowed revenue, looking at the regulatory controls for PowerCore, as for the others, they're all much of a muchness, it's 0.1% increase. So this whole issue of pay me uh, and at least you'll get better access is just a complete beat up. Um, there is no substance to this issue. Yes, there's a general voltage issue. Networks are running their, their substations generally at a high voltage, um, but that's entirely solvable. And it seems like a completely trivial problem. So, you know, the networks have every reason to establish evidence to the contrary, but where is it?
1: So do you think, do you think then, um, I mean, I guess the, the, the AMC in their report suggested that, um, in, in fact, they agree with you. They just was said that the, the, the cost to everyone, if it was sort of smeared over all consumers, was only about $14 a year. So the inference from them was that any fee that is charged will not be great. Um, yet it will unblock those what seems to be blockages now is that okay if if what's then passed on to the consumer to to the people in, in the worst affected parts of the grid is reasonably minimal or do you fear that um once they've been given a green light to charge something then it'll just get out of hand
4: no, I don't think there's any issue of been giving a green light to charge something. The standard regulatory process is the networks say what they want. They go to the AER. The AER bashes them over the ears a bit, and they settle on a number. That process is not going to change with this. Um, so this is not carte blanche for them to go and spend a whole lot of money. The point is, there's not a great deal of money to be spent. So you could, you know. You you can say, guys, augment the network to bring in the solar. There's nothing that that needs to change. It's all working just fine. If you want to say, oh, gosh, we want to claw out something to do with solar access, okay, so you create a massive system of administration and tariff setting what have you for 0.1% of the network charge, which, to be clear, is 0.03% of the typical residential bill. It's a complete nonsense. Mm. So this issue is not about costs imposed by distributed energy. That's not what it's about. It's about what's commonly spoken as um, pay to use the system, the concept of user pays, which is kind of one of these jargon terms which means more or less what you choose it to mean. (laughs) But in economics, It's it's not a rational basis to charge for things. If as a consequence of charging for use and you say, well, I'm gonna charge people because they're injecting power in the grid and you said, well, that's a principle. And as a consequence, you stifle rooftop solar uptake. You are, as we know, you are causing greater utilization of the network, more network construction because you're getting electricity from sources which are further from the load and you're undermining the positive effect that rooftop solar, like large-scale solar, has on prices, which is to bring them down. Why would a public interest entity, which is what the regulators are meant to be, want to do something like that? Mm. It just doesn't make sense. There is no rational argument for Mm. it. But if you said, nonetheless, even with all these things, I still really want to do it, then you say, fine, don't just do it for the distributed energy, do it for everyone. I actually saw a fascinating email last night, which was actually the federal energy minister in Tassie, saying about the Mariner's Link. Ah, user pays, he said. It's essential that the user pays. He was talking about the Mariner's Link, which will be, they say, 3.5 billion. Let's call it five once they've done their next stages and so on. And his principle was that the customers should be paying for that, not hydro Um, OK, fine. So you say hydro shouldn't pay to, to, to actually um, You know, use the poles and wires. Why then should the distributed energy customer pay?
1: It's interesting this thing with the solar tax. And, and actually, just talking about Mariners, it's the same principle with Snowy Hydro because Snowy Hydro um, wants to build Snowy 2.0 and that requires um, several billion dollars in transmission links. And it doesn't want to pay for that either and wants yes. to pass that on to the consumers. So, look, a lot of people are kind of sitting on the fence on the rooftop solar tax. They've kind of been sort of thinking, and I've got to admit, I'm probably one of those people thinking, okay, well, look, if the cost isn't that great and if that's what they say has to be done to sort of free up the network and to remove the restrictions, then okay, if they just sort of charge a small amount, a certain amount of people, then maybe that's okay. You're saying, no, that's not good enough. Tell us what's at stake if this tax goes through.
4: Yes, I think you're quite right, Giles. There are lots of people sitting on the fence. I think they're taken with the idea of usage and they kind of have in mind, oh, well, there's something that needs doing. Well, no, there isn't something that needs doing. And the evidence on that is quite clear. So then it's the idea, oh, well, there's a usage charge. Um, You know, is that a worthwhile thing the user pays? Oh, well, maybe, maybe not. To which my answer is, if you think it's okay for the distributed, then you cannot in the say it's fine for them and not do exactly the same for the big producer. Otherwise, you're actually spilling it off. Uh, And those are two arguments in kind of theory or in principle that you might have. The bigger argument to me, as far as I'm concerned, is what the AMC said is, oh, well, it's to be left to the networks and the AER and consultation with the customers. What they'll be putting in place is a radical change to the network access arrangement, a stalking horse, if you like, which even if in the first phases, it doesn't mean much, over time can gravitate up and come to mean a great deal. So. You know, let's be quite clear. What the AMC has said is the typical fee that they expect and that they think is plausible is $100 as a usage charge for the typical customer. Now, we've analyzed 7,212 bills. These are actual bills, so we don't need to bother with a model. We've got the actual numbers off the bills, and so we can see how much households are exporting. And the typical household customer exports 2,200 kilowatt hours a year, which is about the the energy that takes an EV for roughly 12,000 Ks, which is an interesting figure in itself. Um, If you charge $100 to that customer to inject that total volume of energy, uh, and you put it at the feed-in rate that will apply in Vic in a couple of months' time, um, that's worth $120. So you're going to give them $120 feed-in, and you're going to subtract $100. Um, from the network use of the system charge, they left with two-thirds of nothing. What does that mean for solar installers knocking on people's doors and saying, hey, guys, solar is great, government's promoting it, we'd like to put a solar panel on your roof, here's the economics. And the only economics that they can show is the value of the energy self-consumed. It will undermine the market. And the economics of solar, as I come back to, as I said earlier, are fantastic. They're in the public interest. There, there can be no contest of that. They're not imposing costs on other customers. They're bringing costs down for other customers and they're bringing costs down obviously for the household and the business that actually installs it. So um, I, I, think, I, I think the thing must be sent back to the drawing board. I think it'd be crazy for the states to agree a stalking horse like this and say to the AMC, come up with evidence that there's an economic problem to be solved. And if you think there is, then justify to us why you think we should distinguish the residential energy consumer, or the small energy consumer, or the distributed energy consumer and generator against the large. And if they can't answer those, then job done. Um, But I really think there's some fundamental economic issues here that they should put on the table and say, this is not justified, back to the drawing boards.
1: They have said, insisted that um, large generators do pay a charge and they're describing their, the sort of the cause of pays and the marginal loss factors. Is that a fair comparison to what's being imposed? No, here? no,
4: no, 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 no. Everyone pays marginal loss factors, whether it's the load or whether it's generator. So in the calculation, the feed-in tariff, there's a the marginal loss calculation. Some newly connecting solar farms and wind farms have been forced to pay, again through an AMC error, a system strength charge, Um, which has impacted those, but the vast bulk of generation on the name pays shallow connection, and all the coal pay no connection because they were developed by the vertically integrated companies, um, shallow connection, they do not contribute to the shared network, and they make no meaningful contribution through other system events. So yes, there are isolated cases of of uh, strength payments being charged to generators which have caused all sorts of problems and are in the process of hopefully trying to be fixed. But that's got absolutely nothing to do with payment of the shared network, which is what this feed-in tariff payment is all about. And customers pay to connect. And if you're a small, customer putting on a big solar system and it's infringing the distribution network, they can levy a specific charge to you, just like a large generator. So I'm afraid Ben Barr's answer to that is, is simply not the case. It's just absolutely clear as day yeah. and night, you are not talking apples with apples in the comparison of the payment that the large, you know, the large firms make.
1: The other inference from their uh, modeling is that this will be encouraging to um, battery storage. Now, certainly not the difference in feed-in tariffs and the sort of application of solar tax is not going to actually drive anyone to batteries because it's just not enough to make a battery reasonable. The inference is then that with a battery that they might be persuaded and rewarded for sending things back into the grid at certain times and things like this. And then presumably this translates into things like electric vehicles um, and the two-way and the bi-directional charging that will inevitably have in the grid. Is that a reasonable argument?
4: No, I don't think it is. So, you know, we all like batteries. Batteries are the order of the day. I think they're fantastic. They do all sorts of clever things. But the public interest is not to put in place a tax or a charging regime that forces something else else to happen that you might think is desirable, but that is economically inefficient. If there was a good reason to impose a charge and the economics said that was sensible, You should impose it, and then the system readjusts. And if that means taking up storage, great, that's an economically sensible thing to do. But to impose a charge that has no rational basis in economics and then say, oh, gosh, but look, it gives you these things that you guys happen to like, therefore you should let our charge happen is is PR and is disingenuous. It is it is undermining the economic credibility of the entity that nominates that as a reason that what they're actually proposing is actually sensible. It all comes down to a, a reasonable basis in the public interest for a charge like this. And that all comes down to evidence that there's a problem and there is no evidence.
1: Bruce, thank you very much for joining the Solar Insiders podcast. Thank you, Giles. So that was Bruce Mountain from the Victoria Energy Policy Centre. Jonathan, I mean his main arguments are basically that um, the costs of upgrading the network are not significant. Uh, the network should have been doing it anyway. Uh, it's wrong to charge solar households to export when effectively um, main big generators aren't charged to use the grid, and he just sets it a re- he just senses it's a really bad precedent. It's kind of like a stalking horse is is the words he's using for other things that we've got to keep a watch out. So to what extent do you agree with him? And maybe, well, yeah, I mean, I think you, like many of us, are sort of sitting on the fence. Um, yeah, yes.
3: that, that's right, Giles. I'm, I'm similar to Nigel and, and all of us at Solar Analytics have been having these debates, and we've, we've got a bit of difference, you know, even within our house about it. But I think um, we agree a lot more than we disagree. And it's probably true of, of where Bruce is at the moment. I think he's got a lot of really strong points, but uh, but lands firmly on one side of this. Of this. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to really put myself in a position of – arguing the, uh, you know, the, the proposing, the proponent side, um, I am pretty balanced on it. I'm pretty well in the middle. But to to your question about um, those specific issues, I think there's a couple of important things to unpack there. And one is what is the actual cost? He argues that it is not actually as large as is being um, made out here. And, and okay, that's a great thing if, if, if that's the case. And I think he points to some numbers that, um, that support that. So, The important thing to understand here is that um, the AEMC is not setting a a price here. Um, What they're doing is setting a framework and it's going to be up to the uh, network operators to put forward their pricing proposals and for the AER to uh, approve those or to to negotiate them down. So if it is not a big cost to support the increasing solar on the grid, then the logic would follow that the kind of charges that are going to be incurred by solar owners through a through an export charge won't be very large. Um, now, we'll see if that's the case. Uh, I think the AEMC has used about $0.02 cents per kilowatt hour in their modelling, um, which is reasonably modest. So, look, I, I think if that argument holds true and it's not a big cost, then it becomes a bit of a moot point anyway. The framework is there and can be used. Um, I think the more important thing about this. And, and the reason that I, I lean slightly in support is that it does create a framework in which solar exports is considered a regulated service, uh, and therefore it has to be supported. Now, that is both the good and the bad about this draft rule, in, in my view, in that it does set that up, that framework, um, that the networks can't just ignore it or try to block it. But it doesn't really give us anything concrete at the moment uh, that holds them to account. It leaves a lot of that open. Uh, and simply leaves the point at being well. Now that they've got an incentive that they can charge for exports, then they're going to um, be motivated to try and maximise the exports of solar. So that it's not quite strong enough for me. I would like to see much stronger requirements on the network companies to make sure they are maximising uh, exports and are uh, not just going and slapping on export limits onto everyone. Uh, As is increasingly happening at the moment.
1: Well, this goes to Nigel's point, doesn't it, about this lack of transparency? Um, You know, quite now we're getting we're getting solar export limits and solar export restrictions, and we've got no idea why or whether this is indeed valid.
3: Yeah, that's right. And and look, one of the positive things that is in there in the draft rule that um I you know I didn't notice on the reading the headlines, but if you look into more of the detail, there is a requirement. Uh, on the networks to report the level of export limiting uh, each year. So uh, depending on how that reporting occurs and how, how much it does get obfuscated, um, whether they can really bring some transparency to this process is going to be key here. So again, I'd be looking to the AEMC hopefully in the final rule to add some clarifications about really where that transparency is coming from and then to the AER to make sure that they are really requiring the networks through their proposals uh, and and approvals process uh, to make sure they have justified um, the revenues that they are seeking to recoup and justified those charges and shown what they are going to do in terms of transparency and what that means for solar customers.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm going to jump right in on the back of that because you know, talking to solo installers for the last goodness, nearly thirty years, and particularly watching what has happened around the networks over the last five to ten years, there have been sledgehammer, arbitrary approaches to export limiting uh, thrown at this industry willy nilly, left, right, and centre, and and without any need for justification without any need for verification uh and 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 I read a story on your site Giles um uh today about someone who had been originally told they were going to be restricted to a zero export and then when they challenged it they were suddenly able to export and were unable to justify why the change had occurred <laughs> i think that was bruce i think it was bruce i think it was bruce but that is a classic example right at the end of the day, you know what you've got and 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 where i where I am fearful about this is you've got Mr. and Mrs. Jones spending ten, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars, maybe more if they're throwing a battery on, are uh, in many cases being forced to adhere to an arbitrary export limit without any need for justification whatsoever, investing their own money. Um, uh, based on uh, encouragement and incentivization from federal governments through SDCs and, in some cases, state governments through state rebates, getting behind that, throwing solar on and and, and now being told that they're going to be penalised. And you can understand why people are ired about that. And um, so, you know, I, I I really think the networks, you know, have... Um, uh, have a case to bear uh, in terms of acknowledging that they might not have actually done this particularly well in the past. They might have perhaps ignored it and pretended that it wasn't happening in the beginning and then acknowledged that it was happening but didn't know what to do about it. They know now exactly what they need to do. And if they haven't caught up, they need to bloody well catch up and um, get sophisticated about this because we have a raft of rules uh, at state levels, that we've talked about the SA regulations and various other things that are designed to mitigate these types of things. Um, so, I I, I, re- I really think that you know, on the, um, uh, uh, on the on the perspective of how unfair this could potentially be, it's we also have to consider what's happened in the past. Yeah. Jonathan, I mean, on the basis that the networks haven't really come to the party as best as,
1: as as they might well have done over the last 10 years, and I think most people agree that they probably haven't, um, do we just th- throw this back in the face and say, no, this isn't good, enough, to start again, or do we try and make this as best as we possibly can?
3: Yeah, look, I, I, I think... I think where we're getting to, and it comes back to what we were saying at the start, is is that uh, us versus them approach is starting to break down a little bit. So um, as, you know, so, solar analytics has grown and and we found ourselves being a little bit more sought after in the industry, which is really exciting, we've had the chance to work with people at all levels, you know, AMO and, and a bunch of the networks. And we're meeting really great people who are our kind of people who think like we do, who really want solar in there sometimes there are people who've studied the same kind of things I've studied at uni Uh, so there are good people in there and I think that generational change is is happening through the network so I don't I don't really not keen on punishing uh, past uh, um, atrocities or that's maybe too strong a word but uh, behavior
2: Um, solar solar atrocity solar atrocities I
3: I, I think the point here is that As I said before, a while ago, they were ignoring us. Um, There was a time where everyone was trying to stop solar. Uh, Now I think that time is over and everyone's realised that this is happening and everyone wants their piece of it. So we're seeing the retailers uh, do that. We're seeing the networks uh, do that now. Uh, People are trying to work out, well, how can they profit a bit off solar as well? And so while that will create a bit of argy-bargy, ultimately it's a good thing because it just underlines how unstoppable this industry is. So it's really interesting
1: to see what's happening in the generation in the Gentailer space. So we've seen AGL this week talk about a, a, a split in the company's assets, it's essentially splitting it between retail and large generation, effectively from, to, from behind the meter, from households with solar and battery storage, electric vehicles and things like that. And then there's all the, your, sort of your big asset, assets, such as your coal generators, which have got a limited life, and, and some other large-scale central centralized generation, which may have a longer life. And that's just basically a record recognition that rooftop solar has now had such an influence over the, the, the workings of the network and the grid and the energy market that they have to change and they are just doing everything they can to embrace this and to capture it and to tell convinced consumers that they're on their side and they're going to have a fair, couple, you know, it's it's not going to be easy for them to convince them that because there's going to be other people out there um, telling them the same thing. The Teslas of the world, the Googles, the Amazons, and goodness knows who else, who else is going to enter the market. So, I'm I'm presuming that the networks need to think along the same lines, and I'm presuming that this mechanism has to have some level of incentive. For the householder to engage with this, and, and maybe that comes in the way that these deals are packaged. We we don't really know, as you say, the AEMC has set up a framework. I guess you know, the um the real test won't come until we've actually seen how this evolves and how much incentive there actually is for households to be encouraged to either install battery storage and to get paid for that and to payment for services, whether that's actually meaningful, whether it's helpful. Um, you've got any comments on that?
3: Well, well, look, I think that's a really good point when we think about uh, what's going to happen between now and when these are implemented. Um, one of the things that we're trying to uh, put together with some communication to our customers and, and uh, installer partners is, is that solar is still a really good investment. And part of the thing to remember here is these changes are going to take a while to come through. Right. So there's still the process of going through and turning this from a draft rule into what is likely a final rule. Uh, Then the network companies need to come up with their pricing proposals and then go through the five year regulatory approval process. And I think the next ones aren't until 2024, uh, starting with New South Wales and and then going through to 2026. So we've got quite a few years to go before these export charges see the light of day and appear on your bills and you know when we when we think about the pace of change and what we've seen the last few years what we're going to see a lot of other things are going to change in that time as well so in terms of i guess you know the battles that we could fight to really support solar out there uh, this one's not not a massive problem for me it's a okay it's a little imposter. it's going to be a little off the business case or, or the the investment case for a uh, for a solar system but that kind of red adds right on to the uh, investment case for a battery system. And that's kind of what the AMC and really what everyone wants is is for that market to start stacking up. So I'm optimistic that by the time we actually see these uh, chargers start to hit uh, bills, uh, we're going to see prices have dropped for batteries and we're going to see that case being a lot stronger. And then it kind of becomes uh, a moot point for, for for the whole Solar Plus battery Uh, uh, economic case and it starts to open up a few of the arguments for this proposal in that you may have beneficial outcomes for exporting power at peak times and I think that really that really suits well what we're trying to achieve in terms of matching up uh, supply and demand so yeah I I think I think at the end of the day when all this washes out over over the decade I I think we'll see this as uh, not a major impost on solar customers and probably a positive thing overall for integration if, and I come back to that again, if we get that transparency aspect right. Yeah.
1: Nigel, um, what are solar installers going to be telling their customers? Because this does add a level of of, um, uncertainty over their ultimate returns. And for some people, investing in solar is very much a – Got to be a business case, they've got to see their return on investment and not everyone can just go out and splash on solar just for the sake of it. Um, So what should or could the solar installers be telling them?
2: Oh, that's such a good question because I can already see the campaigns being put together Get solar now before the solar tax hits, right? So that's. Except. That's <laughs> inevitable. I, I make a prediction here and now that in the next uh, 30 days, we will start to see campaigns coming out from, you know, the perhaps the scaremongerish on, on the industry. Yeah, uh,
1: but, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not too sure that's going to be entirely accurate because I think the solar tax is going to be retrospective and apply to everyone, not just the new installations. But
2: anyway. But anyway. <laughs> Well, well, but I, but I certainly, I mean, there is we've seen this before, right? As soon as there is a, a whiff or a hint of something that might uh, that might change the economics around solar, we will see the industry leveraging that as hard as they can in in some parts of the industry. So I think that's the first inevitable uh, outcome of this. But I think I think uh, well, what I really like about Jono's um, analysis of this entire conundrum is that when it's all said and done and when you actually look at the numbers and you look at the economics around solar and especially if you project yourself forward a couple of years um it's not probably all things being equal and notwithstanding we have to get some of the rules and regulations right it's probably not going to dramatically change the economics of solar little and solar and batteries Especially given that we're a couple of years away from it. and i And I have to say, I mean, one of the issues that I chatted with Johnno about today, which I'm interested to probe him a little more on, was that you know I have this bugbear that I can go down to bunnings, I can buy the crappiest solar air conditioner, or air conditioner uh, or, or or compressor or load of any type that I like. I can drag that back home without any approval or authority whatsoever required. I can slap it on my house, and I can whack a massive uh, demand on the network at my sole discretion. And uh, you know, as long as I'm paying my bill, um, the networks and the retailers are completely happy with that under the current rules and regulations. And I'm not required to do anything. And so, you know, um, I I I, I probed Jono on this today, and, and and Jono, tell me again. Explain to me again why I shouldn't feel aggrieved about the fact that you know eight or nine million air conditioners are already on the network and don't attract a direct and specific penalty, whereas two or three million solar owners may. Uh,
3: well, I won't do that, nice because you should feel aggrieved, but I'll but I'll tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> and and the reason the reason is it comes back to part of the justification for this uh, rule change is is that at the moment. Um, load is the service that has to be met so the network operators are under an obligation to meet the load requirements uh, and they're incentivized to do so uh, whereas they are not required to meet the export requirements so that's simply a, a case of what the regulations have have set up the system to do.
2: Now I'm going to interrupt um, because that, that that's a really crucial crucial issue in this whole debate for me before sorry to interrupt but that is a really crucial issue because the fact that this if i'm if i'm not mistaken what you explained to me today was the big benefit of this is that if we can create an obligation to support solar in the same way that they're obliged to support a load that's actually a win for us right it is. It is. That's right.
3: And, and that's still the big if, though, because that's not explicit in there. What's it, what it does say is that it makes exports part of the regulated service, but it doesn't really tell us what that means. And so, again, that's where we're really looking for some certainty around what those obligations are going to be. Uh, so that's, I think, where the pressure needs to come from. If we want to add some pressure on this rule change and and on on this this part of the industry, that's, I think, where it should be. That transparency and that that really putting your money where where your mouth is in terms of supporting exports. Um, the, the the other thing to note on on that front is that there is a move, albeit a rather slow move, to cost reflective pricing. There's a, that reform is on its way, and we're seeing that in in increasing um, use of time of use. Uh, tariff arrangements and demand charges and really you have to remember that a big part of what um, drives the network costs is the peak demand it doesn't matter what's flowing on a regular day what matters is what happens on the peaks and that determines how large your your substations need to be what kind of transformers you need to have how what kind of gauge your wires need to be that's where all the costs drive but one of the problems at the moment and why there's been resistance and, and slow pace towards cost reflective pricing is that customers really don't have the visibility of those price signals or all the ability to react to those price signals. So it's all well and good to, to slap a big um, cost reflective charge on them, but they have to understand what they can do about it. They need the education to say, well, maybe get that air conditioner rather than this one because it's going to have a, a lower effect on peak demand. Um, that education needs to come a long way. And and that's one of the things that, of course, solar analytics is really trying to do is to provide that visibility and provide control functionality to be able to manage and navigate those changes. So I think there are a lot of moving parts to this whole thing. So coming back to the original thing, yes, you can feel aggrieved that uh, air conditioners and the like and heavy loads are driving a lot of the cost out there. It's not really solar. But going back to where we started on this, If that solar cost driver is is small, as Bruce says it is, then hopefully we'll see that the charges that are applied are also not that big and solar will remain one of the best investments that you can make.
1: Well, guys, um, I think we've probably, um, with uh, Bruce's interview, we've um, probably gone to about 40 minutes, which... um, um, but look, a really good discussion of the issues, which I think is gonna be an important one for the solar industry. Um, I don't think the debate is over by um, any means. And certainly the AMC is looking for feedback um, over the next four or five weeks um, before it then uh, considers those and then makes a final recommendation. And I think as we know, um, After that, it's probably still going to be a couple of years by the time that the um, networks go out and consider what they're going to do and negotiate with consumer groups and all goes back in front of the energy regulator. So um, it could be a while yet, but still something that we need to get it right. Nigel, um thanks very much, mate. Um, not our usual format, but look, um a nice change um ahead of the Easter break
2: and um I hope you have a great long weekend. Thanks, mate. And and I agree, biggest issue of the week, uh, perhaps of the, the last few weeks, it's come up on our radar all over the place. And uh if there's one message I could throw out to um, you know, the federal politicians who are who uh and, and rulemakers who are considering this. Uh, It would be to look back in history and remember that um, the solar industry, bless them, uh, solar owners, is probably one of the biggest uh, and most easily activated lobby groups uh, out there. We have effectively a solar army of solar owners, two and a half million homes. That makes about six million people who love their solar. Who've done their best, who've made their investments, and just want a fair go. So, um, uh, don't poke the solar bear. Well, that's
1: exactly right. And I do have to say um, that the passions have been running hot. And I've done actually quite a few um, radio interviews over the last week or so, and the feedback from the solar owners, the house, households, is 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 one um, of agreement. So, um,
3: it'll be interesting to see how this play out.
1: Hey, Jonathan Jonathan Dorr from um, Solar Analytics. Um, thanks very much for
3: joining us today. Uh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Giles. Thanks, Nigel.
1: Yeah, and look, uh, thanks also to Bruce Mountain from the Victorian Energy Policy Centre for um, his discussion as well. Thanks, of course, to all our sponsors, um, Solar Analytics, Cleanergy at Sunweds. And um, we'll be back in a fortnight, um, probably back to the normal format. And I um, hope you have a great break and um, we'll be back soon. Bye for now.
0: Solar Insiders was brought to you by Clenergy, the providers of high quality mounting systems for residential, commercial and utility scale solar projects. With in-house engineering and projects divisions, Clenergy provides a unique edge with its expert advice. Let Clenergy find the right framework for any solar application. Solar Insiders was also brought to you by SunWiz, Australia's leading service provider for the solar and storage industry. Sumwiz's new partnership with OpenSolar will amplify the value delivered by their world-leading solar software platform. With pro setup, training and assistance, run your business at maximum velocity. Visit sunwiz.com.au. Solar Insiders was also brought to you by Solar Analytics, developers of smart solar software you can trust for homes, businesses and solar retailers right here in Australia. Get more from your solar. Visit solaranalytics.com.au.